So good to be with you, Cornerstone. And uh, while you're standing, let's just go ahead and lift our hands and thank God. Thank Father, you, we love you today. We thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we're so thankful for the fact that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We declare that Jesus is not only alive, but he is Lord. And Father, we just thank you for the power of your spirit working in our lives. And Lord, we thank you that you that have begun a good work in this church and in our lives individually, Lord, you're going to perform it. You're you're going to perfect it until the very day that Jesus returns. We thank you, Lord, for meeting needs in the lives of your people today by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, it's such a joy every time... Uh, uh, I think about coming to Dothan, and as Pastor Bobby said, I've been here several times, got to be here when you launched and dedicated this new building a few years ago. It's just joy to my heart to think about coming here, and I love Pastor Bobby and Stephanie. Do you know that you have some of the best pastors anywhere? Amen. You really do. That'd be a good place to clap. Um, they are top-notch people. And uh, just some of the best folks I know anywhere. And so, um, again, it's a great joy to be with you. I'm going to be sharing with you today about the topic of miracles and the supernatural through church history. And um, when you, whenever you use the word history, how many of you know there's a tendency for some people to think, oh, no, history is boring? You ever, ever think that? Like when you're going through school or something like that. But you know when history is not boring? is when it, it's personal, when it means something to you personally. And I don't know, over the last few years, I have a daughter who's 35, and for whatever reason, she's kind of gotten interested in all this ancestry stuff. I don't, she's not done the DNA part of it, but she has done the part of going back and looking through the genealogy things. And just a few days ago, she said, Dad, did you know that you and Mom are cousins? Well, that's not something you're really wanting to hear uh, from your daughter. And I said, well, no, honey, I, I don't think. She said, yeah, if you go back and she, I don't know, 12 generations or something like that. She went back and said, yeah, you're, you know. So, I mean, it's, how many of you know you go back far enough, everybody's cousins. All right, Adam and Eve, we all have, you know, common ancestors and things like that. But um, she's really gotten interested in all this uh, things, and she's learning about different people from way back. And, um, you know, a few years ago, uh, I began to get a little bit more interested in the history of the church. And our, do you know we have spiritual ancestors? You can go back and say, well, my great, 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 somebody did something or other. But did you know if we go back, that's our, that's, that's our spiritual father, great, 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 great spiritual grandfather. We may not even know it. But people all through history who have loved Jesus and served Jesus and things like that, um, it's just enriched my life a lot. And the reason this is really important to me about miracles and the supernatural through church history is because I don't know what kind of church you were raised in, but I was raised kind of a mainline denominational church. I wasn't raised in a charismatic church. I wasn't raised in a church where people lifted their hands or, you know, believed in the gifts of the Spirit. Um, you know, we, we said the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. 
in my church growing up, and I, I think the Apostles' Creed is wonderful. But, to, it, but the problem was it was just real ritualistic to me, uh, just, you know, kind of said it without thinking it, what it meant or having any real meaningful impact. So, you know, I believed all the right things. I believed in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and things like that. But um, when I was 18 years old, a friend took me to a meeting. And it was way different than the mainline denominational meeting that I had been raised in. And uh, people were doing what you were doing today. They were raising their hands. And uh, one thing that kind of shocked me is that I saw people actually, this is a, a, a dynamic, uh, you know, impacting thing for me. I saw people smile in church. I don't think I'd ever seen people smile in church. Unless the preacher said, you're dismissed, then people would smile. But people were actually smiling. They were, there was something in their heart that was involved in it, and, and it was personal, and it was meaningful. And, um, you know, like, like your pastor, I had a background in sports, and um, whereas he is a big football guy, I played tennis at a university and, and all that. But even, you know, right after I graduated from high school, um, I had kind of a back problem from tennis, and it didn't keep me from playing, uh, but it sure made life, you know, kind of painful and unpleasant. And I'd had, I'd had pain in my back for about two solid years, and um, uh, just a real distraction. It was an annoyance to me. And this gentleman said, if you have pain in your back, I want you to stand up. Well, I was shocked because about, about a third of the congregation stood up. I didn't realize that many people had back problems, but I was one of them, and uh, I stood up, and he just picked out five people from the whole congregation, and I was one of the five that he picked up. Now, in my church, we didn't do this. It was foreign as could be, and, um, but he called us up front, and he laid hands on us and prayed, and um, you know, I felt tangibly the power of God come into my body. And um, afterwards, he said, bend over and touch the floor. Well, he didn't know, because uh, this guy was from out of town, he had no idea that because of this back problem, if I'd bend over about, pat, about to my knee or beyond with my hand, uh, I'd start having sharp shooting pain down the back right leg. And um, so, but, but after he prayed for me and told me to bend over, I put both palms on the floor, and um, there was no pain. And I was 18 years old then. That would be 42 years ago, uh, 43. And uh, um, I haven't had any pain in that back ever since. I, God healed my back. And um, all of a sudden, that got my attention because I, I grew up believing that God could do miracles that he did do miracles, but that today, you know, really didn't. You know, kind of like somehow between when the last apostle died, you know, some people say that. When the last apostle died, God quit doing all that. And all of a sudden, I'm in 1977 now, and God just did one in my life. And I start interacting with some of these folks, you know, from this other type of belief. You know, they believed in Jesus the same way I did. They believed in the Bible the same way I did. They just believed it was for today. It wasn't just, you know, ancient history. Uh, they believed it was that Jesus was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And all of a sudden, I started finding out a lot of other people have experienced, you know, some of these things as well. 
So at any rate, um, if we could, I gave uh, some slides. If we could go to the first slide for the presentation. It's about six or so into it. It's by uh, Dwight Moody. Is he there? Thank you. D.L. Moody was one of the great American evangelists. Um, He was kind of the Billy Graham of his day. Uh, He was back in the 1800s, and he made this observation. He He said, there's not a denomination in the world that didn't spring from revival. And, you know, whether you use the term revival, renewal, outpouring, awakening, a move of God, you know, something of that nature, there's all different terms for it. But God wants to be real and alive in the midst of his people. And, um, and, and D.L. Moody was really right. Uh, all through history, there have been these times when God would just visit his people in kind of what seems to be a special way. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm just as human as anybody else, and I can get in a rut like anybody else. Uh, I can begin to take things for granted and things like that. And every once in a while, God just wants to stir us up and, and, uh, and remind us of, of, you know, how important our relationship is with him. And D.L. Moody made a really important statement there that, that, that when God revives or brings new life into uh, our relationship with him, God just likes to stir things up once in a while. Now, if you'll go to the next slide... Uh, As you go through the Bible, you find out that God, in the New Testament, there's this massive listing of all these different ways that God might touch or move in somebody's life in a special way. And um, Paul gives four listings in particular, and they're listed here. Um, These are just different, what I call supernatural expressions prophecy, ministry, what we'd call just serving in the body of Christ, teaching, exhortation, leading. Um, We go down to a list of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, word of knowledge, word of uh, wisdom, faith, gifts of healings, working of miracles, and so on, Um, and these other listings. And um, unfortunately, some people today uh, believe that some of these things don't exist anymore. And I believe that the whole, not only is Jesus the same, but I believe the Holy Spirit is the same. Our next slide uh, gives us something I think very important. That is other things that the Holy Spirit will do. There's a tendency when we talk about spiritual gifts or operations of the Holy Spirit, there's a tendency to only think about the most dramatic, to only think about the most spectacular. But how many of you know that, um, that, that the Holy Spirit a lot of times will do things that are more subtle? They're, they, they're not all the fireworks and things like that. And I believe we need to appreciate everything that the Holy Spirit does. And here's a listing of some of these things. When people get convicted about, you know, their sin, I'm not talking about guilt and condemnation, but when the Holy Spirit draws attention to an area of our life that we may need to make an adjustment in. That's a working of the Holy Spirit. Conviction, the new birth, assurance, illumination, the infilling of the Spirit, empowerment for service, boldness, divine comfort, peace, 
divine guidance, just even the fruit of the Spirit when God helps our character develop, and uh, compassion, mercy. The Holy Spirit wants to do so many things in our lives individually, and we all have to be on guard against just getting kind of in the motions of things and forgetting how much the Holy Spirit wants to be involved in our lives. Sometimes he does dramatic things, and when he does, wonderful, but we also need to love and embrace all the, uh, what we might call the ordinary workings of the Holy Spirit, if there even is such a thing. But I love something that Brother Hagin wrote. Our next slide. Um, he said the inward witness is just as supernatural as guidance through visions and so on. It's just not as spectacular. Many people are looking for the spectacular and missing the supernatural that is right there all the time. And uh, Pastor Bobby and I were talking about that, that last night at dinner, as a matter of fact, that, you know, you'll hear people have these dramatic experiences and things like that. And thank God for when they happen or if they happen. But even when there's nothing dramatic or spectacular, how many of you know there's just something about the Holy Spirit's presence in our life uh, when he leads us, when he guides us, when he comforts us, when he encourages us, when he works through us to bring encouragement or hope? hope to somebody else. Um, you know, we don't always get to determine how spectacular what the Holy Spirit does, but we can always be open to his influence and his working in our life. I love something that uh, Reinhard Bonnke said, the great uh, African evangelist. He said, Christianity is either supernatural or nothing at all. We had and we still have a supernatural Jesus with a supernatural ministry, creating a supernatural church with a supernatural gospel and a supernatural Bible. Take the miraculous away, and you have taken Christianity's life away. Uh, the church becomes an ethical society or a social club when it is intended to be the grid system for transmitting the power of God into this powerless world. You and I are conductors of God's power to the world. I, I like the story about a little girl that got a new Bible, and she took her Bible to church and there was an older gentleman sitting on the same row as her, and he was just trying to be friendly, and he says, wow, he said, that's a nice Bible you've got there. Is that new? And she said, yes, and she was holding it tight, and he just, again, trying to be friendly. I said, well, that Bible, could I see your Bible? And she said, well, yeah, but, but don't open it. You might let God out. And, uh, you know, but, but we need to understand God is in the Word. God is the Spirit of God. Uh, he's in us. He's around us. He, every time we gather, He's here. And um, there's just a, an expectancy that we, the church, can have for God the Holy Spirit to move in our life. And the next slide shows us what I think has happened with a lot of folks. Um, you know, they've decided, well, you know, God will do certain things today. But then there's other things that God's not as, you know, like all the gifts of the Spirit. He doesn't do those anymore. Those passed away, you know, with the death of the last apostle, you know, uh, you know, these some things God will do today, but some things God won't do. And my question is, who gave somebody the right to go through the Bible and mark through and say, God doesn't do these kind of things anymore? 
Well, a few years ago, I got to studying, you know, what's happened in the church century by century. You know, did the gifts of the Spirit really pass away when the last apostle died? You know, John was the last of the original 12 to die right at the end of the first century. And there's a lot of people that will just get up and say, you know, well, you know, when the last apostle died, all these miracles stopped happening and things like that. And um, so I want to introduce you to a bunch of people that maybe you've never heard their names. Um, uh, but, but I want to introduce you to him. Let's see, what is our next slide? Um, our next slide is, oh yeah, simply before we go into the people, Jesus said that when we went into the God, world to preach the gospel, he said, he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And Jesus said this, these signs will follow who? Those who believe. He didn't just say the original 12. He said, these signs will follow those who believe. And he went on and talked about different things, laying hands on the sick and the sick recovering, casting out demons, speaking in tongues, and so on. And it says, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word. Notice it's confirming the word through accompanying signs. So let me begin. What we're going to do is we'll just go a little bit this morning, and then tonight we're going to pick up and, and continue through church history. But let's go to the first slide of some of the people we're going to be introducing you to. Let me first of all say we've, we grab pictures off the Internet of some of these people. Those are not photographs. Nobody knows exactly what these people look like. If you think they're, you know, dressed up funny, um, you know, depending on your church background, you know, I, I personally don't think, you know, all these fancy robes and all that are all that necessary. But that's how a lot of the ancient artists drew them. And uh, But the first guy we're going to look at is Ignatius of Antioch. And uh, he was actually a disciple of John. Uh, he uh, died in the year 117, and he died a martyr's death in Rome. He was fed to the lions. And uh, when he was being taken to Rome for, you know, his execution, he wrote seven letters. And we have these seven letters today, and they are so powerful. He was so full of faith. And he told the church in Rome, he said, don't you dare do anything to get in the way of my execution. He says, I want to die for Jesus. They considered it such an honor to die for the Lord. That, you know, they had spent their whole life preaching, many times being thrown in jail and persecuted. And for them, I know this may sound funny to us with our mentality today, but for them to seal their testimony with their own blood was the greatest honor that they could have. And so he wrote the church at Rome and said, you know, I'm coming to Rome. They've condemned me to be executed. Don't you do anything. Don't file any appeals. Don't try to rescue me. He says, I want to honor Jesus by giving my life in the, in the Colosseum. And he was fed to the lions. But one of the letters he wrote was to another pastor in Smyrna named Polycarp. 
And Polycarp was another disciple of John. So these are two guys. They both were disciples of the apostle John. John had died, you know, 18, 19 years before this. But he told Polycarp, the other pastor, he told him, linger constantly in prayer. Seek a greater understanding than what you have. Ask for invisible things that they may be, may be made manifest to you and that you may lack nothing and abound with all spiritual gifts. To me, that statement is so rich. How many of you know, and I'm just as guilty of anybody else, how many of you know that it's real easy if you look at what you're praying about, everything you're asking for is something visible, something tangible? Because we tend to be pretty materialistic-minded. But, but there is this hungering and thirsting after the things of the Spirit of God. Uh, he told him to ask for invisible things, things of the Holy Spirit. And he said, if you'll do this, he said, they'll be manifest to you. And he said, you will abound with all spiritual gifts. Now, here's my statement. If all the spiritual gifts just got turned off, when John died, these guys would have known it. These guys were John's disciples. But they knew that the Holy Spirit had not changed just because John had died. They knew that the same gifts of the Holy Spirit that were there while John was alive were still there today. And so Ignatius was telling Polycarp to pray for these invisible things, you know, linger in prayer, and, and then you're going to abound with all spiritual gifts. Our next slide is a guy over in Rome named Justin Martyr, and he died later. He died in the year 165. As a matter of fact, he died right around the time, I'm, I'm sorry, he was born right around the time that the apostle John died. So he said daily, some of you are becoming disciples and you're quitting the path of error. He said, you are also receiving gifts illumined through the name of Christ, for one receives the spirit of understanding, another of counsel, another of strength, another of healing, another of foreknowledge, another of teaching, and another of the fear of God. So he's talking about people, gifts of healings, foreknowledge, things of that nature. And in the next slide, he goes on to say this. He said, many of our Christian men are, we'll just say, casting out devils. And he said, exercising numberless demoniacs throughout the whole world. And in your city, in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified, they have healed and do heal, driving the possessing devils out of the men, and so on. And uh, he said, they couldn't be helped any other way, but through the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of these spiritual gifts, people are being helped and they're joining the church. So again, this guy was born around the time that the apostle John died, and 65 years later, he's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit still being in operation. We go on to another guy named Irenaeus, of Lyon, and he was actually over in France. I'm, I'm going to get to teach this in France, and there's a number of French ministers through the centuries that operated in the power of God, so I'm looking forward. I'll, in November, I'll be teaching this 
in Nice, France at a Bible school. But Irenaeus of Lyon, he died in 202. He talked about the disciples who received grace from God performing miracles. And he said some drive out devils. Uh, Those who have been cleansed from evil spirits frequently both believe in Christ, join themselves to the church. Others have foreknowledge of things to come. They see visions and utter prophetic expressions. The next slide says others still heal the sick. He talks about even the dead have been raised up and remained among us for many years. It's not possible to name the number of gifts that the church scattered throughout the whole world has received from God. And so we see this. Um, We we go on to the next slide. And um, he said, we also hear of many brethren in the church who possess prophetic gifts and who, look at this, and who through the Spirit speak all kinds of languages. What does that sound like? And so Irenaeus over in France was seeing this. You drop down to northern Africa. Our next slide is a guy named Tertullian. And um, he was over in the area that today is called Carthage. And he said, many men of high rank have been delivered from devils and healed of diseases. He says, we acknowledge spiritual uh, charismata uh, or, or the gifts Our our next slide on Tertullian says, uh, we recognize and honor the prophecies and the recent visions. He said, we also regard the rest of the powers of the Holy Spirit as tools of the church. How many of you know the gifts of the Holy Spirit are tools? They're not toys. They're not just for Christians to play games. They're to set people free and they're to accompany the gospel as it's being preached, setting men and people free. In another, the next slide, Tertullian talks about what happens when people come up out of getting baptized in water. He said when you come out of your baptism, he called it the most sacred bath of your new birth, and you spread or lift your hands Uh, for the first time in the house of your mother, he's talking about the church, together with your brethren, ask from the Father, ask from the Lord that his own specialties of grace and distributions of gifts may be supplied to you. He's saying, when you get baptized in water, come up out of that water, lift your hands up to heaven, and ask God to impart grace and spiritual gifts to you. Did you know the Bible says that we are to covet the best gifts? And here, uh, a couple centuries later, Tertullian is saying the same thing. Tertullian was associated with a group called the Montanists, and uh, one scholar says that the Montanists were the first charismatic renewal within the church. Uh, They said, hey, we've been kind of neglecting some of these spiritual things. We need to reemphasize the Holy Spirit and so on. Um, We move forward. Our next slide is a guy named Origen. Uh, He looks pretty old there, but when he was about 17 years old, uh, he was from Alexandria, Egypt. When he was about 17 years old, you know, this was a time when many times uh, Christians were being persecuted and put to death for their faith. And um, his father was a pastor in Alexandria, Egypt. 
And um, his father was arrested, and um, they, they had him in jail, and they were going to execute him the next morning, put him to death. And Origen told his mother, I'm going to go, well, it was a couple days, I guess, uh, the execution date was. But Origen said, I'm going to go turn myself in because if they're going to kill my dad, I'm going to die with my dad. He was that devoted to Jesus. He wasn't just devoted to his dad. Well, his mom, while he was asleep that night, his mom hid all of his clothes so he couldn't leave the house. He didn't have anything, no clothes whatsoever. And uh, because, you know how, how many of you know moms will be moms? Okay, And so he lived, and he ended up becoming a great leader of the church in northern Africa. And he said, he said, the name of Jesus can still remove distractions from the minds of men, expel demons, and also take away diseases. Furthermore, the name of Jesus produces a marvelous meekness of spirit, I like that, and a complete change of character. How many of you know it's good to not just have spiritual power, but also to have your character, you know, worked on by the Holy Spirit? How many, of, is he still working on any of us? You know, the fruit of the Spirit's always a part of it as well. But, but he talked about, and again, Origen died in uh, 253. Um, the next slide from Origen, also it's a quote by him. He said, uh, we can show countless multitudes of Greeks and barbarians who acknowledge the existence of Jesus, and some give evidence of their having received through this faith a marvelous power by the cures which they perform, invoking no other name over those who need their help than that of the God of all things and of Jesus. For by these means I too have seen many persons freed from grievous calamities, from distractions of mind, madness, and countless other ills that could not be cured either by men nor by devils. So they were still seeing people being healed, people being set free, people being helped. Uh, we go up to Rome, and uh, our next slide is a guy named Novation. And he was one of the ministers in the church at Rome, far before all the things that we today associate with Roman Catholicism got, you know, a lot of the later traditions and doctrines that were created later. You know, the early church at Rome was very much, you know, Bible-based. Uh, he said the Holy Spirit is the one who places prophets in the church, instructs teachers, directs tongues, gives powers and healings, does wonderful works, offers the discerning of spirits, provides powers of government, gives counsel. He orders and arranges other gifts of charismata. That, the, the word charismata, it means grace and grace-based gifts. Uh, and he makes the Lord's church everywhere perfect and complete. Our next slide is a guy whose last name is pretty hard to pronounce, Gregory Thaumaturgus. And that word Thaumaturgus, it, just, it means the wonder worker. This guy had so many miracles happening through his ministry that they called him Gregory the wonder worker. And one of his contemporaries, a guy named Basil, 
basically said, you know, how are we going to describe this guy? And he said, uh, shall we not place him among the apostles and prophets? He walked by the same spirit as they and never through all his days deviated from the footprints of the saints. And he talked about the, and this guy had so many different types of miracles. The next slide of, about Gregory Thaumaturgus goes on to say, for by the partnership of the Holy Spirit, the power he had over demons was tremendous. Moreover, his predictions of things to come that of things to come were such that they did not fall short of those of the great prophets. To recount all his wonderful works in detail would be too long a task. By the superabundance of gifts produced in him by the Spirit, in all power and signs and in marvels, he was called a second Moses even by the enemies of the church." So we have these people operating in these powerful ministries full of the Holy Spirit, ministering just like the apostles ministered, and yet we're, you know, a couple hundred years away from that. Next guy is a guy named Antony, and I, I hate this picture of him because I've studied him in depth, and they said he really had a joyous countenance, that he was, you know, and they, they I don't know, some, some of these guys thought they had to make everybody sad looking. But anyway, um, one of the other great church leaders said of Antony, the Lord healed the bodily ailments of many present through Antony, and he cleansed others from evil spirits. Talks about people, he, some people got healed, some people didn't. Um, it's, I, I like this. Um, it says, uh, often the Lord heard him on behalf of many, but he did not boast because he was heard, nor did he murmur if he was not. And those who were healed were taught not to give thanks to Antony, but to God alone. So, you know, he was doing the right thing by saying, hey, I can't heal anybody. It's Jesus that's healing people. Uh, but he died in, in 356. We go on to the next slide, and it says, For in that place the Lord also cleansed many of demons and healed those who are mad or, you know, mentally in, in need of help. And uh, it talks about at the end of this that as many Christ people... As many became Christians in those few days as one would have normally seen converted in a year. And, and some of these guys back then, when they would go out and preach the gospel, there would be power demonstrations and people would come to the Lord in great numbers, which all that is doing is following the pattern of the first century, uh, Jesus and the apostles. We go on to our next slide. And this is a guy named Hillary. Uh, that is a man's name way back then. I want to clarify that. And he was another guy that was based in France. And uh, all these people are kind of around the Mediterranean at, at, you know, this time in the early church. And he died in 367. But listen to what he says. It's so powerful. He said, when the words of life are spoken or when there is understanding of divine knowledge... When by faith we stand inside the gospel, uh, when healings and miracles are performed, uh, 
when by prophecy we are taught of God, when spirits holy or evil are discerned, when sermons in foreign languages are signs that the Holy Spirit is active, when interpretation makes intelligible the sermons in foreign languages. Now, let me, let me just stop here. He continues, but I want to comment here. Pastor Bobby mentioned, I've had the privilege of preaching in 31 nations. My wife and I just got back from 35 days in Brazil. And uh, every time I go preach in a foreign nation, uh, and we've been in a bunch, if they don't speak English, I always have an interpreter. And it's always prearranged and that type of thing. But in these days, way back when, uh, you had different times recorded like on the day of Pentecost. You remember on the day of Pentecost? Um, the Bible says the, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And, and it created actually, um, somehow, people all over the city began to hear about it. And, and people were in Jerusalem on a special festival of the, the holiday of Pentecost. And so there were people there from all over the world and they said, we don't understand how this is happening. We are hearing them in our own languages declaring the wonderful works of God. That was one of the purposes of the gift of tongues. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 talks about tongues being also for personal edification. Kind of we use the term of personal prayer language. But they had even into, this is well into the 4th century, they were recording instances of, of different people traveling and they would meet someone who spoke, a, they did not understand each other's languages, but the Holy Spirit enabled them to give a message that was understood in the other language. Uh, because Why? Because God is still a miracle-working God. Uh, Hillary went on to say this, the rest of his statement, is, in all these gifts, the presence of the Spirit is manifested in concrete effects if the gifts are effective and profitable, then let us make use of such generous gifts. We are inundated with gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I'm telling you today is this. Many of us have heard, or in my case, nobody ever told me the gifts of the Spirit stopped. I just assumed they had. I just assumed that God did healings and miracles and different things back then, but, but for whatever reason, he doesn't do it today. I just assumed that. But some people have actually kind of made it a doctrine. They say, well, you know, all these gifts stopped at the end of the first century. Well, all these people I'm talking about today, are these are not obscure, unknown people in church history. These people that I'm talking about are like almost the Billy Grahams of their day, and these people are prominent. Their writings are massive. You can spend hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours reading the documents that these people left. And um, so to say that the gifts of the Spirit stopped at the end of the first century, history says otherwise. 
You know, history is full of these things. Now, Hillary had a disciple, somebody that studied under him, named Martin, and we can go to him in the next, Martin of Tours. He was also from France, and, um, and it was written of him, the gift of accomplishing cures was so largely possessed by Martin that hardly any sick person came to him for assistance without being at once restored to health. And then it says that threads from his garment or things that had been plucked from sackcloth that he wore worked frequent miracles upon those who were sick. For by either being tied round the fingers or placed upon the neck, they very often drove away diseases from the afflicted. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the same kind of thing that happened with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19. Do you remember that? The Bible says that, that God worked special miracles, meaning these weren't normal miracles. Pastor Bobby, I want to get to that point where I have not just regular, I want special miracles. I'd, I'd actually be happy with just regular miracles. But, but the Bible says God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So that from his body were taken cloths and even aprons. Paul was a leather worker, so he would, you know, wear that when he was doing his secular work. Uh, that cloths and aprons were taken from the body of Paul, and they were placed upon the sick, and the sick were healed. And if there were demons, they were driven out. And Brother Hagen taught us that apparently, you know, that when a person is is carrying an anointing of the Holy Spirit, that that anointing can get absorbed in the cloth, which would explain why in Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. She never touched Jesus. She said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made whole. And so, we're seeing this same kind of thing happen, you know, right up, this is right before the the beginning of the 5th century. Um, Our next slide is a guy named Basil of Caesarea, and uh, they said that he understood the working of the Holy Spirit better than hardly any of the other early church leaders. He had a really profound knowledge of and, and really relationship with and understanding of how the Holy Spirit worked. And he said when the stream of doctrine is gushing forth in the church and a devout heart is welling up with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, do you not gladly give your attention? Do you not receive this favor with thanksgiving. And he went on to say this, Basil went on to say this, he who receives any of these gifts does not possess it for his own sake, but rather for the sake of others, so that in the life past in community, the operation of the Holy Spirit in the individual is at the same time necessarily transmitted to all. The Spirit is ever-present and works as need requires in prophecies or in healings or in some other actual carrying into effect of his potential action. I know the wording on some of this is a little bit, you know, antiquated and that type of thing, but I really like what he said at the beginning. He who receives any of these gifts does not possess it for his own sake, but rather for the sake of others. 
you know, when, when we are living out our Christian life, you know, one of the things the Bible says is that we are to desire and covet the best gifts. And the gifts of the Spirit are not necessarily always for a church service. Um, they can just be operational in our day-to-day life. You know, you can be at work and the Holy Spirit can just nudge you or give you an impression uh, about somebody at work that has a need or something that you can do. Now, I remember one time, we, uh, I, I told Pastor Bobby today, I, I worked for a pastor back from 1980 to 1983, and he's the guy that gave me my first opportunity, and he passed away at 12.55 this morning. And so I've been in touch with him. He is 87, just a wonderful man of God. And I've been with him and been with his family recently and all that. But when I worked for him, I had some situations. You know, we were having a prayer meeting one time at church, and um, everybody was just praying. And, and, uh, and, and I, I happened to look out, and it was over in this direction of the church, and um, we had some altars, you know, that, that folks would come down and pray at sometimes. And I was actually up on the platform. I was over on this side. And uh, as I looked down at the altar down here, there was a young man praying. And there were people all, people all over the church praying. But I, I just, my attention was drawn to this young man. And... Uh, and, and I don't know why I focused on him for a minute, but I did. And I sensed the Holy Spirit uh, kind of, it, it wasn't dramatic, it wasn't sensational or spectacular, but I just, I just seemed to hear the word suicide. And um, so I kind of, my mind kind of thought, well, what's that about and all that? But I just thought, well, I, I think that was the Holy Spirit. And so I said, I'm just going to go down. And I went down and I knelt beside that young man and I said, can I pray beside you for a minute? He said, sure. And I, I just prayed beside him for a minute. And then I said, can, can I talk to you for a minute? And he said, yeah. And um, so I just said, I, I could be totally wrong. I said, please, if I'm wrong, please forgive me. Uh, but, but I saw you down here praying and just on the inside, it seemed like I felt like maybe you've been maybe been dealing with thoughts about taking your life. Is, 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 that, is that right? And man, his eyes got so big. And he said, he said, yeah. He said, I pretty much already decided to do it. And um, he said, I just, he'd never been to our church before. He said, I just came here. Uh, he said, I thought I'd give God one last opportunity, you know, maybe to help me. And um, I said, well, well, I think God put that on my heart to tell you uh, that he has a plan for your life and that he doesn't want you to do that. And I was just able to minister to him and encourage him and things. And he accepted Jesus that night, you know, and re- I, more probably a rededication of his life that night. But it was just that, you know, we would call that probably a word of knowledge, but see, he said, when you, we receive these gifts, we don't, we don't do it for our own sake, but for the sake of others. Uh, the Holy Spirit will give us things to communicate. Now, something kind of interesting, I, you know, sort of cute. Uh, the next day, he called me on the phone, 
And he said, uh, Brother Cook, he said, you know, I, I, I've got my life turned in the right direction now. He said, I'm, I've got hope. I'm, I'm going to, you know, kind of begin to rebuild my life. He'd had a lot of things go wrong, and he's just really discouraged. And he said, but I, I've got hope again. He said, um, I need to go out and apply for a job today. And he said, I just wonder if you could do that one thing you did last night and, and, and just have the Holy Spirit tell me where to go apply for a job. And I said, well, brother, it doesn't really happen quite like that. I said, I, I said this thing's not just a light switch that I can turn off and on. I said, now, if God tells me, I can tell you. But otherwise, I said, I'll just pray with you to have wisdom and, and direction from the Lord. I said, I can't just make this happen every time I want to. But um, let me close with this final one. And what we're going to do is we're going to pick up here tonight, and we're going to kind of come up more, much more toward modern days about how the Holy Spirit has continued to work through church history. Let's look at one final slide here, and that is a slide Augustine. Uh, Anybody here ever been to St. Augustine, Florida? It's named after this guy, all right? St. Augustine, the scholars and the theologians say that after the Apostle Paul, he was the greatest theologian you know, from the time of Paul until his day, and they consider him to be one of the greatest scholars of all time. But he said this. He said, even now, therefore, many miracles are worked. The same God who worked those we read of still performing them by whom he will, he, he will and as he will. Notice, he's writing in the 400s. He's writing into the 5th century, and he, he is saying that many miracles are still worked. We go to the next slide of Augustine, and, and he actually uh, wrote, um, uh, he was a prolific writer, and he wrote one work where he recorded 70, seven zero different miracles that he had witnessed amongst the, in his church and the people in his community. He, he records 70, and then he says, I cannot record all the miracles I know. That's after he'd written 70 of them. And he says, and doubtless many of our church members, when they read what I have written, they're going to be upset that I have left so many out. I'm paraphrasing it. That miracles that they know about and I certainly know about. Even now, I beg these persons to forgive me and to consider how long it would take me to relate all those miracles, which the necessity of finishing the work I have undertaken forces me to omit. I just think that's amazing that Augustine, considered the greatest theologian after the Apostle Paul, he wrote, and and I've read his entire deal, and he, he took a, a good bit of space to write out these 70 different miracles. He, he used the people's names, talked about how they had the miracles happen, and then he says, there's so many more, I can't write them all, and people are going to be upset because I didn't write about their miracle, and he said, I just have to ask people in advance to forgive me because I don't have time to write all the miracles, and so here's what I'm saying today. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what a lot of this has done for me is is to stir me up just to have a hunger 
And just to be saying, Lord, you know, are there some other ways you want to use me that, you know, I, I'm not maybe aware of or, or being as sensitive to or things of that nature. But it's just stirred within me an expectancy to, to really be open to the Holy Spirit working more in my life. And um, we can, I'm, I'm writing a book on this right now. So I've got a deadline of actually December 24th. They want me to be done on Christmas Eve. And uh, we'll have a full book on this out next year. You can pre-order it if you want to uh, out at the table where we've got all of our books. But um, we're going to go into much, much more detail, uh, not just these individuals. I'm really just hitting a few highlights today. Um, But church history is full of... um, people that just said, Lord, here am I, use me, and, and they were always totally committed to Jesus and the gospel. They weren't like just going around trying to do magic tricks, you know. They, they were bringing Jesus to people. They were bringing the gospel to people, and then they were allowing the Holy Spirit to confirm the, the gospel with signs following. I have been looking forward to tonight. Uh, I didn't even take a nap this afternoon, which is very unusual. And maybe part of that was being excited about being back and uh, sharing. I wanted to share. I shared one picture from Brazil uh, where I was just a few weeks ago. But I wanted to share a few other pictures of some of the other places we've been just in the last year or so. If we could uh, pop up the first one. Uh, This picture is in Egypt. And uh, that picture is actually taken on a boat on the Nile River in Cairo, Egypt. And Egypt is heavily Muslim, of course, but uh, that gentleman helped, uh, he oversaw the translation of four of our books into Arabic, Um, and uh, there, we've gotten good reports there in Libya, uh, Morocco, um, I can't even think of all the countries, Um, they're in Lebanon, of course, and uh, we know they're in Iraq already, but they're uh, going across northern Africa and the... uh, the Middle Eastern countries where Arabic is spoken. The next picture, uh, we, that night we met with 60 uh, Egyptian pastors, and they all got free books, and we did a book signing and things of that nature. Uh, the next picture is um, one that's, I don't know if you know Pastor Bobby Grady Pickett. He's a Rhema missionary in Iraq, and he and his family have been there several years, and he's giving a copy of our grace book, uh, in Arabic to that is a Kurdish pastor, uh, one of the Kurdish pastors in northern Iraq. And so we were really excited to get that picture and just know these books and all that are going into these different locations. Next picture is uh, in Beirut, Lebanon. Uh, that's from last April, I believe. We had some really good meetings over there uh, with the Beamers and so on. And um, next picture is uh that's Turkey. That's, uh, uh, that's a Holy Spirit conference that I had the privilege of speaking at. Um, it was right outside the ruins of ancient Ephesus. Uh, today, Turkey is about 99 point some percent Muslim. And so it was really a joy to be there. Uh, the group that we were with had translated Brother Hagen's book, Triumphant Church, into the Turkish language. Everybody got a free copy of that. It was really a great uh, great event there in Turkey. Next picture is, um, uh, that's uh, Lusaka, Zambia. That's Walker and Haley. I know Pastor uh, Bobby's been there before, and um, wonderful people, and they're doing a great job. We were there 
uh, a year ago in the spring, I think. And I think maybe we have one more picture, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this is in Moscow, Russia. And uh, I'll be going back there again in just about next month. I'll be making my seventh trip to Moscow. And from there, we'll be in Israel. And then after that, we'll be doing a conference in Paris, France. But good things going on in Russia. And is that the final picture? Or is there one more? Um, I guess that was the final picture. So let's, let's pick up where we left off today. Uh, we had just talked about Augustine. And if you talk to most people in America, they just think of the beach in uh, St. Augustine. Uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, Augustine was an African. Uh, he lived in Algeria, modern day. Uh, wasn't called that back then, but he was from what today is northern Africa, Algeria. And uh, Augustine said, even now, therefore, many miracles are worked. The same God who worked those we read of, meaning the ones in the Bible, uh, he's still performing them by whom he will and as he will. And, and the next slide uh, goes on to talk about when he said, I cannot record all the miracles I know. And isn't that a wonderful thing for a pastor to be able to say? You know, honestly, I can't say that, I don't think. Um, but, but he said, I can't record all the miracles I know. Um, he saw God doing so many things uh, at that point in time. And he did say something else that I thought was really good. I think it's a good pastoral statement. He said, the Holy Spirit, too, works within that the medicine externally applied may have some good result. So he believed in divine healing, but he also recognized that, hey, you know, if you need some medicine, take the medicine and believe that whatever it does from the outside is going to supplement what the Holy Spirit does from the inside. Isn't that good? I thought that was pretty, pretty wise. Uh, we step into another guy. Our next slide is an individual named Gregory the Great. And if you know history, this may surprise you a little bit because he was one of the popes. And... Um, Sometimes I was raised Presbyterian and folks that are raised in Protestants like the Catholics are way on this other, you know, side of this great divide. But um, there were some individuals back there. Now, John Calvin, who was one of the main reformers in the 1500s, he had a lot of things he didn't like about Catholic beliefs and so on. Uh, but even John Calvin said uh, that Gregory the Great, he said he was the last good pope. Okay, so, you know, take that as you will. Now, I love Catholics. Don't misunderstand me. We're not bashing anybody or, you know, we just understand there have been some differences. But he said that Gregory was the last good pope. But Gregory was extremely evangelistic, really sent out missionaries a lot. And um, he said, I, know, I, your unworthy servant, know how many soldiers have become monks in my own days. So as they got out of the military, they, you know, wanted to serve God and they stepped in that avenue and, uh, and have done miracles, have wrought signs and mighty deeds. And he said, now generally we see holy men do wonderful things, perform many miracles, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, dispel bodily sicknesses by touch and predict things to come by the spirit of prophecy. So he was talking about all these gifts, healings and deliverances and prophecy and things of that nature. So again, the main point we're trying to make through this uh, teaching that we're sharing with you today is simply that the Holy Spirit did not go into retirement when the last apostle died. 
all right? Uh, God never planned for, you know, when John died, oh, my goodness, well, you know, we're not going to be doing, we're not going to really bless people anymore. We're not going to heal people anymore. You know, that's kind of a man-made division uh, because the Holy Spirit was intended to be in and through and upon the church as long as the church is here. And um, so nobody had told any of these people that the Holy Spirit was not supposed to be doing these things anymore. And, you know, one reason people are always saying, well, why don't we see as much as we did back then? Well, one reason is because everybody's been told that God doesn't do it anymore. And um, so there's very little expect, uh, expectation. Some people, you know, wouldn't believe, you know, and if, if something miraculous did happen, you know, they'd get all scared. Well, maybe the devil did that, you know. Well, I know the Bible talks about lying signs and wonders, but, you know, when the name of Jesus is preached and the word is confirmed with signs following, you know, that kind of follows a pattern established in the Bible is something that God does. And um, so anyway, one of the missionaries that was sent out by Gregory the Great uh, was another guy by the name of Augustine. We want to look at the next slide. Augustine, uh, this is not the one that was in northern Africa. This guy was a missionary up to England. And uh, England had not really been evangelized very much. It had a little, but not much. And uh, Augustine was a missionary. And that uh, Gregory sent a team of 40 people up to England, and um, it's, this is what was written about him. He and those that have been sent with him are resplendent with such great miracles in England that they seem to imitate the powers of the apostles and the signs which they display. More than 10,000 English are reported to have been baptized. And uh, so there were notable miracles and things happening there. We also read about in the next slide, um, uh, Gregory also wrote, the English by outward miracles are drawn to inward grace. And one thing that in all my studies and all that, I, I find that God never did miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. Um, God did miracles to point to something. Uh, in this statement here, by outward miracles, they are drawn to inward grace. You know, God just doesn't want to do a work on the outside of somebody. He really wants to do a work on the inside of people. And, and, and sometimes, well, you know, the inside work is the most important. But, you know, my question is, when did God say we had to choose? Uh, we see in the Bible that God tends to like working both on the inside and on the outside. And... Um, then acknowledging that Augustine had received the gift of working of miracles, he cautioned him not to be puffed up by the number of them. I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. Pastor Bobby, nobody has told me, hey, Tony, you have so many miracles, don't get the big head, you know. And um, so, and, and seriously, we do understand that some people are given more toward, you know, gifts of healings and working of miracles. Other people have different kinds of gifts and, and anointings and abilities. So you do have some people in the Bible that didn't necessarily, you know, the Bible specifically says that John the Baptist did no miracles. But, you know, he still did something really important for God in pointing people to Jesus, preparing people for Jesus and all that. So we're not saying that every Christian is going to have a ministry like this. Some people do have what the Bible says, a, a much greater frequency of working of miracles or gifts of healings. Uh, but, but the church 
um, you know, is, is to desire and to covet all of these gifts. So we, we move ahead here. Our next slide um, is another statement about um, uh, uh, Augustine. He was told, whatever gifts you have received relative to doing signs, remember that these powers were not granted for your benefit so that others may receive salvation. And we need to understand whatever spiritual gift we have, um, it, it's not for our benefit. If I am a teacher in the body of Christ, it's not because God wanted to make me a teacher. It's that God wanted somebody else to learn. If I have a gift of evangelism, if, I don't know if there technically is such a thing, but if I have a real strong evangelistic thrust or anointing, whatever, um, it's not for me to be a big evangelist. It's God wants lost people to get saved. If I have gifts of healings operating in my life, it's not to make me the big healing guy. It's because God wants to have compassion on sick folk. And so um, whatever gift God has given us individually and then corporately, whatever gifts and graces God has put in our life, it's not for our exaltation or for us to have a big name for ourselves. It's because God's wanting to get something through us to reach other people. And so these are wisdom, you know, insights of wisdom that were recognized, you know, well over a thousand years ago uh, by individuals that God was using, you know, very similar to the way he used people in the Bible, okay? So let's go on to the next one, and uh, this is a guy, I really like him. I, you know, what I'm giving you are just little nuggets, uh, but all these people, if you go back and study, you can learn all about their lives and their character and uh, this Bernard was a wonderful individual. Um, he was actually, now he's about, uh, Luther was in the 1500s, so he's what, uh, 500 years before Martin Luther. And some of the things that Martin Luther said, hey, wait a minute, you know, there's some problems in the traditional church. Uh, Bernard was pointing out some of those things even you know, 500 years before Luther. But he said the Spirit communicates himself for the working of miracles in signs and prodigies and other supernatural operations, which he effects by the hands of whomever he pleases. See, they understood laying on of hands back then. So that the events of the past may confirm our, or the events of the present may confirm our belief as to those of the past. You know, when I got healed in my back in 1979, I'd always believed in the miracles of the Bible. I'd always believed, you know, that Jesus did the things the Bible said he did. But all of a sudden, when my back got healed uh, from that condition, painful condition I'd had for a couple of years, all of a sudden, it's like, wow, if this happened now, that means those things really did happen back then. It was like there was a connection between you know, past and present. And, and there should be kind of a connection between past and present. If Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we should see some of the things happening, you know, today that, that we saw back then. So he went on to talk about he, the Spirit, is bestowed on them for their benefit, uh, for miracle working, for salvation, for help, for consolation, and for fervor. 
Um, our next individual here is a guy with a funny name, Peter Waldo. And uh, he was not the basis for the kids' game, Where's Waldo? Okay? Um, he was a French uh, merchant. He had ships and things like that and shipped goods and all that. And, um, but he, he, he had a real powerful encounter with Jesus. And he, he led a group. See, a lot of people think nobody did anything other than the Roman Catholic Church, you know, until Martin Luther. But, but Peter Waldo who died in 1218, he had quite a substantial following. Um, and they had beliefs very similar to the Protestants. Um, and uh, one of the things they really established solidly was a belief in divine healing. As a matter of fact, when you read that he had a group of followers and they called his followers, uh, I know when your name's Waldo, what are they going to call all the people that follow you, the Waldites or something? But they called them the Waldensians, okay? That's kind of the best you can do with that. And, uh, but they had this in their kind of their statement of faith. They said, concerning the anointing of the sick, we hold it as an article of faith and profess sincerely from the heart that sick persons, when they ask it, may lawfully be anointed with anointing oil by one who joins them in praying that it may be effective to the healing of the body according to the design and end and effect mentioned by the apostles. And we profess that such an anointing performed according to the apostolic design and practice will be healing and profitable. And uh, by the time Martin Luther came around in the 1500s, there were still many of these followers, you know, who were there. And there were other groups, too, that had broken off from, you know, a lot of the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church and all that. And uh, Luther just kind of, um, he, he, I don't, he just became such a huge figure that um, everybody says the Protestant Reformation started with Martin Luther. But the truth of the matter is, you know, there were people long before Luther that were preaching a lot of the same kind of things like John Huss and Peter Waldo and different ones. Um, Luther just kind of gets all the publicity for it. But there were a lot of people doing a lot of those things long before Luther. But speaking of Luther, let's go ahead and look at him. Uh, he is quite the character. Um, you know, Martin Luther's main uh, issue what he's known for is teaching justification by faith. And what that means is, basically, you're not saved by being a church member. You're not saved by doing religious works. Um, one of the things that really bothered Martin Luther was that the institutional church of that day uh, had a practice of what's called indulgences. And how many people, you don't really know what indulgences are. Let me see your hand. Not 100% sure. Well, here's what was said. Um, they fabricated this belief. I say they fabricated because it's not in the Bible. But the, the church uh, said, well, there's heaven and there's hell. But there's also this kind of in-between place called purgatory. And, um, you know, you, you're really not good enough to go to heaven. So when you die, you go to purgatory. And, you know, if you look at the word purgatory, you kind of see in it the word purge. You know, you've got to get purged of your sins. Kind of like Jesus took care of some of them, but not all of them. 
And so you need to go to this place kind of of suffering. And, you know, you might be there a thousand years or I don't know how many years. But, but, but have we got a deal for you. Um, if you give us some money, um, we will give you what's called an indulgence. And it will get you time off from purgatory. And, um, you know, it always money was always involved. And usually some religious work was involved. Um, we go to Rome today. I've been there a few times. And, and one of the, the, it's actually a palace right next to a church. They have a set of stairs. I think it's 28 stairs. And um, the claim is that these were the stairs that are brought from Rome or from Jerusalem. And uh, they're the steps that Jesus walked up to stand trial before Pontius Pilate. Because Jesus walked on these steps, they're really holy. And so if you will give an offering, money, and, and you will crawl up on these steps on your hands and knees and say a certain prayer on every step, for every step that you climb up on your hands and knees and pray a prayer on that step, you will get nine years off of purgatory. And there's two steps that have a cross on it, but you get double for that, those steps. You get 18 years off of purgatory. Well, Martin Luther even did that. And, and even today, those stairs are always loaded with people climbing up, thinking that they're going to earn time off. You've heard of time off for good behavior? You know, early parole, that's kind of what it is. And um, Martin Luther did that. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for his grandfather, you know, because they were told that your relatives are in purgatory, but if you'll give these monies and do these religious rituals and things like that, then you'll get your, you'll, you'll get your relatives out of purgatory. It's just kind of like bailing people out of jail, you know. And uh, Martin Luther, he was a monk. He was a priest and all that. But the problem is, what messed him up is he got to reading the Bible. And he found out this stuff ain't in the Bible. And actually, it's totally opposite to the Bible. The Bible says, you know, we are justified by faith. You know, we are made righteous by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. So, he, you know, just simple things like Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by grace through faith. And so it kind of shattered the whole religious system. And, um, you know, his voice was loud enough and he, he wrote enough that it really made a huge impact. And um, so, but what a lot of people don't realize is that Martin Luther had more than just doctrine, you know, justification by faith. For example, he said, often it has happened and still does that devils have been driven out in the name of Christ by calling on his name and prayer and the sick have been healed. Um, he, had a, he had a colleague, actually he had a couple of colleagues. Uh, his most famous assistant was a guy named Philip Melanchthon. And he was another preacher, another theologian. And he said that uh, he had been prayed off of his deathbed by Luther. And, um, you know, he said, I was, I was on the verge of death, and Luther prayed for me, and God healed me. But one of the really, um, I, I, it's just amazing to me, he had a, uh, an associate, a colleague in another city named Friedrich Myconius. And Myconius was sick, 
and was about to die. You know, back then they didn't have a lot of good medical stuff and, you know, they didn't have all the antibiotics and surgeries and things that can kind of help preserve people like we do today. And um, so if you got sick a certain way, you you know, they pretty much knew you were going to die. And so Friedrich Myconius writes Luther a letter and basically says, it was nice to know you. Great working with you, but I'm about to die. And, um, you know, good luck. I don't know what he said in his letter, but Luther wrote back to Myconius and he didn't, it wasn't this nice little pastoral, you know, God bless you type of thing. He writes back and says, I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying, this is my will, and, and may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. I'm thinking, I've never written a letter like that. But that was a holy boldness that came on Luther. And, uh, and, and let me tell you the rest of the story. Myconius gets the letter. He, God heals him. And he goes on to work for many years and outlived Luther by two years. So what do we see happening here? I see, you you know, we look at this, the gifts of the Spirit, and I don't know, you know, maybe I'm not right about this, but I see the gift of faith here. This to me seems like, you know, a, a, a spiritually energized faith. Uh, I command you to live. God will never let me hear that you are dead. Um, You know, I I see the gift of faith. I think there's a word of knowledge here, or a word of wisdom, rather. Uh, You will outlive me. He really is predicting the future. So you call it prophecy, word of wisdom. And I think, too, uh, that probably you had gifts of healings in operation, maybe working of miracles, I don't know. But you could have had as many as five different gifts of the Holy Spirit operating. Now, how many of you, anybody here grew up in, I grew up Presbyterian, so we sang some Lutheran songs. Anybody here grew up Lutheran or, um, uh, did? I, do you remember the song, um, this is the most famous hymn of all Germany, um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God. I didn't know this, but I got to looking into this. The, I, think it's, uh, I think it's the fourth stanza of that hymn. He ends it by saying, the spirit and his gifts are ours. The spirit and his gifts are ours. But Luther had different healings and different things that he recorded, um, different times where devils were cast out. We do have a statement here on the next slide. Uh, he was preaching on John 14, 12. Do you know what that says? Anybody remember John 14, 12? That's where Jesus said, He that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these Do you know, there are people today that say, well, you know, that that maybe was for the apostles or, you know, that type of thing. But here, Luther said, therefore, we must allow these words to remain and not gloss over them as some have done 
who said that these signs were manifestations of the Spirit in the beginning of the Christian era and that now they have ceased. That is not right, for the same power is in the church still. To me, this is amazing. You know, um, again, Luther was not primarily known for healing or miracles or anything. He was primarily known for his message of justification by faith. But if you study and read about his life and ministry, you find traces of these kinds of statements right in the middle of everything that he was saying and doing. Anybody here um, know any Quakers? Do you know Quakers? All right. How many of you have had Quaker oats? Have you seen the, the, the what is that, oatmeal? And the, the William Penn is on the, you know, box. Well, the Quakers uh, were actually, they didn't invent oatmeal, but they were a religious group. And their founder, William Penn, was a Quaker who established Pennsylvania and um, a very godly man. But their founder, uh, the founder of the Quakers, was an individual named George Fox. And that's our next slide. Uh, George Fox, in his writings, he talked about how the Lord's power broke forth, and I had great openings and prophecies, and I spoke unto them of the things of God, which they heard with attention and silence, and they went away and spread the fame thereof. Many great and wonderful things were wrought by the heavenly power in those days, for the Lord made bare his omnipotent arm and manifested his power to the astonishment of many by the healing virtue whereby many have been delivered from great infirmities, and the devils were made subject through his name. Now, do you know why they called them the Quakers? Because in some of their meetings, uh, the power of God would fall, and some of them would kind of shake under the power of God. Um, we don't want to make a doctrine out of different manifestations, and, and, and we don't want to get into the thing where we, we try to conjure that up. To you know, but, but at different times, you know, there have been different uh, expressions of either people shaking or you know, people falling, different things of that nature. Um, we, again, we should never try to use that as the litmus test for the, you know, whether God is moving or not. I remember Brother Hagin talking about, um, because how many of you know we've been along, around long enough, some people have just learned to fall. I call it a courtesy fall, you know. And it's one thing when the power of God really knocks somebody out, but it's nothing when somebody just, well, I'm supposed to, so I will. Or when some preacher decides to push everybody to make it look like he's anointed, which you shouldn't have that either. But uh, I remember Brother Hagin talking about praying for 20 people and uh, in a healing line, and he said, you know, 19 of them fell, and um, one person did not fall. And he said the one person who did not fall got healed, the 19 who fell left just as sick as they came. So falling shouldn't be the litmus test of, you know, whether God is present. It can happen. It can, you know, and, and that happened a lot under Wesley and other later folks who were, you know, Pentecostals and all that. Um, but again, shouldn't be the, the 
determining factor of whether God is present or not. But uh, one of Fox's assistants, uh, a guy named Edward Burroughs in the next slide, um, he talked about one of the meetings that he was at, and he said, or several meetings, he said, we received often the pouring down of the Spirit upon us and the gift of God's holy, eternal Spirit as in the days of old. And our hearts were made glad, and our tongues loosed, and our mouths opened, and we spoke with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance. What's that sound like? Um, and as his spirit led us, uh, as the Lord gave us utterance and as his spirit led us, which was poured down upon us on sons and daughters. If we could go back to the previous slide, um, Fox died in 1691. You know, some people think, well, nobody spoke in tongues until, you know, Azusa Street, you know, in Los Angeles in 1903 or whatever year it was. Uh, but, but they were talking about, you know, people speaking in tongues there amongst the Quaker meetings. So we can move ahead now uh, to the next slide and then, of course, to Zinzendorf. Uh, now, let me ask you this. If you had to choose, which would you prefer your last name be, Waldo or Zinzendorf? Uh, or would you prefer just to keep your current last name? All right. Well, Zinzendorf is one of these guys who is not particularly famous. Most Christians haven't heard of him. But let me tell you something about Nicholas von Zinzendorf and his full name, he was, he was aristocracy, so he was a count. You know how people are called count? You know, we hear that, and we only know Count Dracula, but it was actually a title of social prestige. His full name was Count Ludwig Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I'm not going to say that again. All right, we're just going to call him Nicholas Zinzendorf. But um, he was born right around the same time as John Wesley. But most people don't know him. But if it weren't for him, you would have probably never heard of John Wesley. And I'll explain that later. But Zinzendorf um, was a guy who he didn't found, there was a group called the Moravians, and um, he didn't start the Moravians. They actually started under a guy that was a hundred years before Luther, um, a guy named John Huss, who was preaching pretty much the same stuff that Luther preached. As a matter of fact, Luther preached a lot of Huss's material. And um, Huss died a hundred years before Luther started his ministry. And, um, but there were a group of followers that followed uh, Huss, and they were called the Moravians or the United Brethren. And they were savagely persecuted, and they traveled from place to place. I mean, every country they went to, they got persecuted, so they'd travel to other places. And... Um, really persecuted people. And um, they finally heard of this guy, and he, he was born into great wealth, and he had a massive estate. And so some of those folks came to him and said, hey, this is who we are. Um, we've been persecuted everywhere we've been. 
would you mind if we came? There were about 200 of them, I think. Would you mind if we came and lived on your property? Well, he had such a massive estate that it was, he was fine and he was a good Christian man. And, and um, um, long story short, he said yes. And so they came and lived on his property in what I think is southeastern Germany. And they had other people come, kind of refugees coming, uh, trying to all, they were all trying to get away from uh, persecution. And, um, and they all lived on the same property, and, and they were from enough different backgrounds that they started really not getting along. And long story short, uh, Zinzendorf came and said, hey, we're all Christians, we're from different backgrounds, but we're going to get along and they began a process of making peace with each other and forgiving each other and began praying for each other. And they had what uh, Zinzendorf called, they had their summer of Pentecost. They had a period of time after everybody quit hating each other and being in strife with each other, the Spirit of God began to be poured out. And um, it was it was totally in line with Azusa Street and the day of Pentecost, you know, spiritual gifts and the power of God. And that launched, most people don't know this, but it launched in southeastern Germany um, a 100-year prayer meeting. This group, the Moravians, prayed seven days a week, 24 hours a day, for a hundred years, actually it was a little bit more than a hundred years, and it launched all kinds of foreign missions and all kinds of different things. That it was really an amazing outpouring. And this is what Zinzendorf said, because they had a lot of healings and miracles in their day. And he said, "To believe against hope is the root of the gift of miracles." And I owe this testimony to our beloved church that apostolic powers are there manifested. He was saying in our church, we have the same power being manifested that the apostles did. That's what, how I understand that statement. He said, we have had undeniable proofs in the healing of maladies in themselves, incurable, uh, such as cancers. Uh, he said, uh, consumptions, which is tuberculosis, and uh, when the patient was in the agonies of death all by means of prayer or of a single word. And by the time that Zinzendorf had died, they had launched 232 missionaries in multiple parts of the world. Um, they just had an amazing impact. Now, what we're going to do is take a break, a five-minute break, and when we come back, we're going to pick up with John Wesley. Anybody here from a Methodist background? How many, we got some former Methodists. Did you know that John Wesley had a lot of people healed under his ministry? Did you know he prayed for his horse and his horse got healed? Uh, he raised a guy from the dead. You know, was there somebody over here that was Methodist over here? Did you know that he had these different kinds of things happen? I'll share with you some of that. But they had powerful outpourings of the Holy Spirit in the early days of Methodism. So, um, and it's like D.L. Moody said, 
every denomination in the world got started in revival. I want to pick up with John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley, they say, his ministry was so influential that 35 different denominations came out of his message and his work. Of course, everybody associates him with Methodism, and uh, there's many branches of Methodism, but the Nazarenes, uh, any group that has the name holiness in it. Uh, I was ordained for a few years with the Pentecostal holiness, and of course, they drew a lot of their, you know, thinking from Wesley, and um, he taught kind of a second work of grace, which for him was more sanctification, but then later folks began to say, well, maybe that work, second work isn't just sanctification, maybe that's also the infilling, and so, you know, the Pentecostals look heavily to Wesley, um, but you remember I talked to you about Zinzendorf? and the Moravians, and they had their 100-year prayer meeting and sent out, you know, hundreds of missionaries. Well, John Wesley, in his early days, was hyper-religious. He was so disciplined, and he really, you know, he, he, he went to Oxford, you know, so he's a brilliant student. He became a professor at Oxford, and then he, he actually came to America as a missionary. Did you know he was a missionary to, it was not the United States then, it was the colonies. He was a missionary to Georgia, and he was based in Savannah area. And um, so anyway, but he came over here deeply religious. Um, but what happened on the ship coming over, there was a horrible, horrible storm. And um, it, they thought they were going to, the boat was going to sink in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, it just looked really bad, and the main mast snapped and splintered, and, and um, people were screaming. And Wesley, he was actually the chaplain on this ship, and um, he, he said, I found myself terrified of dying. And he said, I had this fear. He said, I didn't really know if I was right with God. Because to him, and so, so many people, and millions of people around the earth today, they mentally believe in Jesus, but they really think, it, if, if, if God accepts me, it's because I've been good enough. I've done enough good works. It's a really, it's a works mentality. And Wesley found himself really terrified of death, and something really bothered him on this, during this storm, and what it was, down deep in the ship, there was a group of, of Moravian missionaries. And they weren't afraid. They were singing. And they were praising God. They had joy, peace. I mean, they were like having a little mini revival down there. And Wesley's up there terrified that he's going to die. And it bothered him. Why do those people have peace and I don't have peace? Why are they confident and have joy and I'm you know and and it bothered Wesley the whole time that he was in the states he was here in Georgia for like two years and four months and and on his way back to England he wrote this in his journal he said I came to save the Indians uh, or I came to convert the Indians but who will convert me he he really recognized you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I've been having a crisis of my faith for a long time. So he goes back to London, and he encounters a guy, 
um, uh, named Peter Bowler. And Peter Bowler begins to talk to him about being born again. And, and Wesley really struggled with this because he'd been so religious. He's kind of like Saul of Tarsus, you know. Uh, you know, man, I'm the Pharisee, of the Pharise- I'm the most religious, you know. He, but but he, Wesley really had this experience where he, and, and he described it. He said, I was at this meeting. They were reading Martin Luther's commentary on Romans chapter 1. And he says, and my heart was strangely warmed. And he had a real encounter with the Holy Spirit. And, and uh, people debate, was he born again then? Was it more of an assurance experience? And I don't know. He really felt that that was kind of a new birth for him. And, um, but uh, so he then went to Germany to hang out with the Moravians for a couple of months. And he's involved in their prayer meetings. And, and the Holy Spirit is being poured out. And Wesley got really impacted by that. So he goes back to London, and he's describing what happens. At about 3 in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, well, you know God is doing something if you're praying at 3 in the morning, all right? Uh, And it was a group of them. Uh, The power of God came mightily upon us in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy, and notice this, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little, I think that's amazing that God pours him, his spirit out in such a way, and people are crying out, people are falling under the power of God, and, and then you have to recover from that. So we know this was a really powerful deal, and uh, as soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God. We acknowledge thee to be the Lord. And one thing that I really like about Wesley, as you follow his ministry, and he had a long ministry. Um, he, I'm trying to think how old he was when he died. He was way up in his 80s. And he was preaching right up until the time that he died. And um, at one time, he, he kind of started complaining about when he was like 85 that he, he, he really couldn't preach more than twice a day. And that really bothered him, you know, because, you know, he just, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't 79 anymore. And, um, but he was just so active and that type of thing. But any time that these kind of manifestations happen, these outpourings of the Holy Spirit, um, Wesley would never allow the emphasis to be on the manifestation. He would always bring it back to, let's give God glory. And he even talked about, you know, in, in a lot of his writings, he would talk about how that he would be up preaching. And, and they, I, I can't find any indication that they did prayer lines back then. Not that there's anything wrong with prayer lines. I just don't see them doing it. Um, I don't see anywhere in Jesus' day that they, you know, okay, guys, line them up, you know. Maybe they did, you know, organizationally. It's a fine way to do things. But in Wesley's day, he would be preaching, and, and uh, he, most of his sermons were outdoors because churches would not let him preach in their church buildings. And uh, so he would preach out in fields, on, uh, on you know, roads and things like that. And I think his largest crowd was 30,000. 
Um, and that's no sound system, nothing. But it was very normal for him to preach in a thousand or three thousand or whatever. And and they're outdoors, so people are standing. And he would preach, and when he he would preach about Jesus and the need to repent, and what would happen is people would just start falling under the power, and uh, no ushers, nobody to catch them, and. Um, and George Whitfield was a fellow evangelist, uh, a really good friend of, of Wesley's. And um, he called Wesley, didn't call him on the phone, but talked to him and said, you know, I hear there's some pretty weird things happening in your meeting, you know, people falling down, people shouting and things like that. You know, and these people were Anglicans, you know, and you know how conservative the English people are anyway. And um, so um, Wesley said, well, he said, you know, I think it's God. But he said, you come preach in one of my meetings. And so Whitfield gets up to preach, and he gets to where he's in, you know, calling people to come to Jesus. And he said, um, and Wesley writes this, he said, immediately four people fell out under the power. And um, he said, Whitfield said, well, yeah, I, I, that happened. I guess I shouldn't criticize that. And, and they came up, and they were born again, and, you know, that type of thing. So, again, it was, never, it was never the issue of did somebody fall or did somebody not fall. The issue for Wesley was always did their life get changed, you know. And he talked about one group that they just liked to fall. And he said, he said, this one group, he, he basically said they're crazy. He said, uh, they will fall 20 times in one service. And then they get up, and he said, they shout glory, and then they fall again, and then they get up. And he said, somebody needs to correct them. And he said, but they should correct them with love. And, you know, because he said, these guys, they're just playing games with this stuff. It, to, to Wesley, it, it wasn't playing games. It was about you know, preaching Jesus and seeing the power of God uh, change people's lives. One time, Wesley was accused. A guy accused him and said, uh, we hear that you claim that people get healed in your meetings. Well, here's Wesley's response. Let's go to the next slide. He was very prolific and eloquent. A guy says, we hear you claim that people get healed in your services. And he said, as it can be proved by abundance of witnesses that these cures were frequently, indeed almost always, the instantaneous consequences of prayer, your inference is just. I would have just said, yeah, people get healed in my meeting, but he had to say it much more fancy. He said, um, he said uh, I cannot, dare not affirm that they were purely natural. I believe they were not. I believe many of them were wrought by the supernatural power of God. It's John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. And, and he talked about people getting healed in his meetings by what he called the supernatural power of God. Let's go to the next slide. This, to me, is one of the most sobering things about everything I've studied. Um, you know, Wesley had, he was an amazing student of church history. He was an amazing student of theology. Um, and he had, he had seen, you know, different movements of God and the outpouring of the Spirit. And then he had seen different groups slide into what today, you know, I would call liberalism. You know, they begin to not really believe the Bible as much. How many of you know there's people that used to believe the Bible and now they don't? They used to believe in a biblical standard of holiness, 
but now it's, well, you know, we don't want to offend anybody. And so, you know, they just get away from the Bible. They get away from the Word of God. They usually start out by saying, well, you know, the Bible, it's inspirational, uh, and it's got a lot of good moral teeth, but it's not, you know, it's not the Word of God. And then they say, well, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead. Maybe Jesus wasn't really born of a virgin. And they start watering down the truth of the Bible. And the next thing you know, you've just got to, well, here's what Wesley said. He said, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case, he said, uh, unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. And I say this as somebody, I love the Methodists, I love the Presbyterians, I married a Methodist, um, my mom was a Methodist, I got married in a Methodist church, I actually got saved at a Methodist youth camp, and and the time when I got healed in my back and actually filled with the Spirit that night, it was in a Methodist church that was hosting a charismatic evangelist. But, you know, every church in America has to decide today, you know, and, and many of them have already made decisions that, well, we want to do what's socially acceptable. You know, we want to, you know, and then other groups are saying, you know, well, hey, we're going to be loving and we're going to be kind, but we're going to hold fast to the truth of the Bible. And, um, you know, Wesley saw that potential danger. And uh, I think that's a pretty prophetic thing, not really just for the Methodists, but for every group. Because like Moody said, every group starts in revival. But what will be the continuing, you know, things that happen? Let's pop over from uh, Europe. Uh, Let's pop over to America. And let's look at uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached in uh, Connecticut mainly, I believe. And um, he, he was uh, heavily involved in what we call the Great Awakening in this country. Uh, he was the leading theologian of the Great Awakening that happened in the 1700s. It was before the uh, Revolutionary War. And then uh, George Whitfield, who was Wesley's friend, Uh, was the leading evangelist of the Great Awakening. But um, in 17, let me get my year right, 1736, I think, uh, they just had an amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit in uh, really all over, is especially heavy in New England. And um, Edwards Church was one of those. And he said the town seemed to be full of the presence of God, Uh, There was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. And um, all these little villages around, you know, and keep in mind, um, Boston, Philadelphia, some of those places, you know, they would just have maybe 12,000 people in them. So, you know, town cities were much, much smaller and, um, but Edwards and other people around this time talked about how that in all these villages all around New England, people just started getting really concerned about, am I right with God? 
And um, this was the time that uh, Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And, um, but he, he preached a message. He preached a lot about the love of God, and he preached a lot about the mercy of God also. That one just got a lot of people's attention. But it was about judgment and the need to repent, you know. And, um, but uh, he said that, you know, churches would just be full of people and, uh, you know, they would be preaching the gospel and people would fall under the power of God and some of them laid there for 24 hours and, and they were in, like in a trance. And can you imagine laying there for 24 hours? It's like they didn't need to get up and go to the bathroom or anything. I mean, we know that's a miracle. And, um, but people would come from other villages just to see you know, well, how long? Well, that one's been there for 20 hours, you know. And, uh, but when they would get up, many of them would talk about, you know, they had seen Jesus and this type of thing. And it just radically impacted New England. And um, Whitfield came and his message was the new birth. So Edwards was kind of the theologian of the movement. Whitfield was kind of the uh, evangelist of the movement. But what happened is, you had, again, you had people being healed. You had people falling under the power. You had all this stuff. And Edwards was such a sharp theologian that he knows that people are people, okay? So when, some, when the Spirit of God is doing something, somebody's going to get in the flesh. How many of you know people get in the flesh and do silly stuff? And um, uh, they start imitating something or they just start, going wild with something, go to some extremes. And then also, how many of you know there can be religious spirits that motivate people, you know, to do things that get in there and mess things up? So our next slide is a book that um, Edwards wrote. I think I took a picture of this in the Museum of the Bible in uh, D.C. Uh, He wrote a book in 1741 called the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. It's not a large book, but he wrote it because he, there were so many manifestations of the Holy Spirit that he wanted people to know the difference between what is the Holy Spirit and then what is somebody acting in the flesh and then what is a religious spirit. Isn't that something? If there's no manifestations of the Holy Spirit happening, you don't have to write a book teaching people how to differentiate between the true and the false, okay? But what he's doing is he's following the biblical pattern, you know, where Paul said, you know, let the prophets speak, two or three, and let the others judge. You know, Paul taught, uh, you know, everything is to be judged. Uh, Despise not prophesying, but prove all things. You know, so he really wrote a book, and he had five major areas that he said when something happens in the church, you know, when there's something that we think might be an expression or a gift of the Holy Spirit, it's going to fit these five categories. Number one, it's going to exalt Jesus. It's not going to exalt people. It's not going to exalt the person using the gift. It's going to exalt Jesus. Number two, it's going to work against Satan and sin. Um, it's not going to. It's not going to do anything that furthers, you know, darkness or disobedience. Number three, it's going to promote the Word of God. Um, 
it's, you know, we've all heard these, you know, kind of jokes about people that, you know, claim to have so much revelation. Oh, it's beyond the Bible. You know, God's shown me things that are beyond the Bible. Well, Edwards said, no, if, it's, if the Holy Spirit's doing something, it's going to promote the Bible as God's authority. And it's marked by a spirit of truth. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause people to walk in greater love toward God and toward man. Um, I've known people that claim to have all these gifts and everything, but they were not very kind people. And uh, I just think if you're going to have a gift of the Spirit, make sure you've got the fruit of the Spirit too. Because if you claim to have a gift, but you don't have the fruit, it makes me wonder about who's your gift, gift really from. So, but, but the point is, the very fact that he felt a need to write this book gives us kind of an indication of how many different elements of the Holy Spirit were really in operation there. Next slide. Um, let's pop back over to London for a minute. A guy named Edward Irving, and his followers became known as the Irvingites, which I guess is better than the Waldensians. But anyway, uh, they had, uh, he died in 1834, but they had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that, that was writ in people speaking in tongues. And a lot of people think nobody spoke in tongues till Azusa Street, but we've already seen, you know, the Quakers had it. We don't know about John Wesley, but we know one of John Wesley's associates talked about speaking in tongues. And Wesley himself talked about some French ministers that he knew of who were speaking in tongues. And then the Irvingites had a, they had a full understanding of different kinds of tongues. You know, there's, I think there's, what, three kinds of tongues in the Bible. There's like on the day of Pentecost where outsiders were hearing, you know, the, the glory of God, you know, through kind of their, their speaking in tongues. There's tongues and interpretation in a local church setting. And then there's tongues, personal devotion, you know, first, and they, they delineated those three kinds and talked about how that there was a kind of tongues that was just for the edification of the person praying in an unknown language. And um, so he said, if they ask for an explanation of the fact that these powers have ceased in the church, I answer that they have decayed just as faith and holiness have decayed, but that they have ceased is not a matter so clear. I mean, what he's saying there, he's saying, yeah, it's, it's been neglected. Just, you know, there's all kinds of things that can quit operating in a church. I know some churches that don't read the Bible anymore. I know some churches that don't support missions anymore. I know churches that don't engage in evangelism anymore. But the fact that those things are not happening in a church doesn't mean that God doesn't want them happening. It just means people have neglected them. And that's what Irving is saying. He's saying these things have decayed just like faith and holiness have decayed, but that they have ceased. He said, that's not so clear. Kind of a little bit of a clever way of saying it. Uh, let's pop uh, back to America. Our next slide is going to be Charles Finney. Um, I was just up in Connecticut a few, oh, mercy, a couple months ago, and uh, Somebody asked me, do you want to go find Charles Finney's birthplace? And I said, yeah, because I love finding all these historical places. And man, we had to go out in the middle of a woods, and we, we had somebody who knew where it was, and we found his birthplace. It's, it's, uh, 
you almost needed to have a compass and a GPS and everything to find it. But um, anyway, Charles Finney, uh, he was the great American evangelist after uh, George Whitfield. Whitfield was the first great American evangelist, even though he's from England. And then there was Finney, and then there was Moody, and then probably Billy Sunday be out in that category, and then Billy Graham. Those would be, to me, probably the five greatest American evangelists. But when Finney preached, and he was mainly up in New York in that area, um, they had all kinds of things happen in his meeting. They, he'd be preaching, people would fall out. But the main thing that happened in Finney's meetings is just almost entire towns would, would have just mass conversions of people. And um, bars, after, he would go in and do a, a, a meeting, and so many people in the city got saved that the bars shut down, the, the brothels shut down. Uh, there, are, there are cities in New York where the police, their reports say, you know, we have had no criminal activity for a month. Uh, since the Finney meetings, nobody's breaking the law anymore. You know, they just, the police just sat and did nothing because so many people had gotten saved and, and a lot of the, like the bars shut down and things like that. But Finney said, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love for I could not express it in any other way. Um, our next slide is um, a guy in Germany. Um, nobody, everybody's heard of Finney. Everybody's heard of Wesley. Most people have heard of um, Jonathan Edwards to some degree or another. This guy was a German guy, and um, he had a really profound healing ministry in the 1800s, and he was talking about Jesus being the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he said, has he changed any? Certainly not. He traveled from place to place doing good and healing so that all subsequent generations could trust him and so that all who are miserable and afflicted might always know where to turn for help. Jesus still does wonderful things, going around and doing good and healing, even if it's in a more inconspicuous way. He draws close to anyone in need and pain so that we too might experience firsthand that he is the one who knows how to help us. Still today, Jesus works good and heals. And he had a really profound healing ministry in Europe that inspired a lot of other people toward healing ministry. But one of the things that I really appreciate, I've noticed there's just this human temptation uh, you know, if you have, you know, some healing or something happen, I've seen a lot of ministers do that. You know, they shine the spotlight on their healing like, look how awesome I am. Look at this, you know, you know we, just, we want to give God the glory, but I want you to know that it happened through me, you know, that type of thing. And I want you to see what Bloomhart said in the next slide. He said, uh, Jesus did not like it when people made a big to-do about his miracles. He always had something more in mind than the miracle itself. When Jesus performed a miracle, what mattered to him was that it would arouse a deep godly feeling. Now, I probably wouldn't use the word feeling, but you know, he's saying God wants to do a work on the inside. 
He said his acts of mercy were signs of something greater, something beyond the temporal. He touched the inner person. All his words and deeds came straight from his heart and touched people's hearts, which in turn evoked praise and glory to God. See, all these guys understood that the purpose of these miracles was not just to do some kind of like magic trick to impress people, but it was always to bring glory and honor back to God. And that was the maturity that these guys had. And he went on to say this. He said, in short, his healing hand made the glory and the love of God visible to everyone. I love that. Next slide real quickly. Um, I want to mention this lady. Again, most people have not heard of her, but uh, she was Swiss. Uh, Bloomheart was German. And uh, it says of Dorothea Trudell, she was influenced by Bloomheart. And, and it, they say so many people were showing up at her door, however, that finally she began to take some of them in. When her home filled up, she bought another and then another. Her time was now spent in supervising the homes and praying for the sick. Hundreds of people were healed through prayer. The stories quickly spread, and people came from all over Europe to receive prayer, including France, Germany, and Great Britain. There were so many people coming that her homes were considered a hospital. Uh, she actually got shut down by the government several times uh, because they said, well, you're practicing medicine without a license. And she said, I'm not practicing medicine at all. We're just praying for the sick. But they shut her down, and they shut her down a few different times, and she would fight in the courts and win, and then she'd get to reopen her homes. And finally, they quit shutting her down. Uh, but again, she had an amazing effect. And, you know, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but... Um, and we won't even get into the 20th century really tonight, um, but you had an explosion of women who were used by God in healing ministry. Catherine Kuhlman, uh, Amy Semple McPherson. You had um, uh, Maria Woodworth Edder. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the folks we focused on have been men, but, but God has certainly used the women uh, in this area as well. Uh, just a couple more slides real quickly. Um, our next one is, this was a Boston physician, and he was influenced by Dorothea Trudell and Bloomheart. He had heard about their works going on in Europe, and um, he was a physician in Boston, and honestly, he's just a, he was a frustrated doctor because he really cared about his patients, and he just basically said, so many of the people I give medicine to, they're just not getting better, you know. And uh, so he began to incorporate prayer and, and Scripture into his medical practice. He never discontinued being a doctor. He continued that, but he just added faith, kind of like what Augustine said, you know, let the Holy Spirit work on the inside so that the medicine on the outside can be effective. And... Um, he talks about, you know, from the time he began doing that, from that day to this, nearly 20 years ago, I've prayed with tens of thousands of people suffering from all kinds of diseases, curable and incurable, with the consumptive, that's tuberculosis, cancerous, the rheumatic, those who have had tumors and all kinds, and with many who had incurable diseases that I cannot mention, and they have been healed. I could tell you, but it would take the whole night and more, some of the most wonderful of cases. And so there are all these people, you know, through church history that have, you know, and some were preachers. Some were not really preachers, 
you know, like Cullis was not a priest. He was a, he was a, a doctor, you know, but he incorporated this into, you know, his medical practice. Let's look at one more, see who we've got here. Um, actually, it's going to be a couple, because I want to do Spurgeon and Moody, and then we'll call it a night. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist, and he was a Calvinist Baptist, but he preached very evangelistically. And um, what a lot of people don't know, people know that he was, he was considered the most eloquent, uh, he, they called him the prince of preachers. And if you ever read his sermons, it's just like, it's like poetry almost, this beautiful, but, but scriptural, powerful stuff. Uh, but what a lot of people don't know is that he had the word of knowledge operate a lot through his ministry. For example, he was preaching one time, and he, just, he looked, he pointed out in the congregation, and he said, young man, those gloves you are wearing have not been paid for. You have stolen them from your employer. At the end of the service, a young man looking very pale and greatly agitated come to the room and begged for a private interview with Mr. Spurgeon on being admitted. He placed a pair of gloves upon the table and tearfully said, it's the first time I've robbed my boss. I'll never do it again. You won't expose me, sir, will you? And kill my mother if she knew that I'd become a thief and so on. But our next slide on Spurgeon, he, he listed several of those. This is all from his autobiography. And uh, he said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed that I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And then he goes on to say, and so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent by God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. And, um, you know, he had uh, what I believe very much is the word of knowledge working in and through his ministry. And... Um, uh, you know, it was the Spirit of God showing him things. Now, if you'd talked to Spurgeon and said, do you flow in the word of knowledge, he might not have even, you know, they didn't necessarily even use that definition back then. Uh, but he just knew that the Holy Spirit showed him things about people, and he would call people out in the, in the audience, in the congregation, and, um, and, and they would come repenting and get their life right with God. So, yes, he was a great preacher, but he also operated in some, some what we call spiritual gifts. Um, we're going to skip one slide, if we could. We're going to um, go right to Moody. Thank you very much. This will be our final. Um, Moody was the... Uh, uh, one of the greatest evangelists in American history, um, responsible, they think, probably for a million people getting born again. And this is before radio, this is before internet, television, cassette tapes, anything, just preaching to people to their face. And when Moody uh, was a young preacher, there were a couple ladies that came up to him after a meeting and said, young man, you're a good preacher but you need the Holy Ghost. And he didn't kind of know what they were talking about, and it kind of, you know, you don't want to hear something like that if you're, you know, you want to 
be told just how wonderful you are, and that's it. Leave it alone after that. But they said, you're, you're good, but you need the Holy Ghost. So he really began to pray and seek God. And uh, his associate, another great minister named R.A. Torrey, said, um, as Moody was walking up the street, he said, in the midst of the bustle and hurry of that city, his prayer was answered. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up the street, and he had to hurry off to the house of a friend and ask that he might have a room uh, by himself, and in that room he stayed alone for hours, and the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand lest he die on that spot, on the spot from, from joy. He went out from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And he then talks about how that, you know, where he had gotten one person saved preaching, you know, it would multiply, you know, five times as many, ten times as many. And um, so we could go on and, you know, go into more modern or recent things, but, you know, we'll have time in the book to cover some of those things. But I just, my prayer is that you are fully convinced that uh, the Holy Spirit did not go on sabbatical when John the Apostle died. Uh, the Holy Spirit was not recalled and, uh, you know, said, Holy Spirit, we don't need you down there anymore. Or, or um, that uh, God didn't issue a decree saying, well, you know, you can convict people of sin, and that, but you're not allowed to heal people anymore. You're not allowed to you know, give spiritual, these certain spiritual gifts anymore. You know, my argument is, and I think it is really well established from church history, that all the things that Jesus told the disciples to do, uh, they've been continuing in every century of the church. And, you know, all the way from the first, you know, first generation or two after John to Luther and all these different people, you're seeing people being set free from demonic power. You're seeing people healed. I didn't go into the stories about Wesley, uh, but Wesley prayed for his horse, and his horse got healed. Um, you know, Wesley had healings that he experienced. He went to pray for one guy, and he said, man, by the time I got there, his pulse, there was no pulse, and his body was cold. He said, but we went ahead and prayed anyway, and God raised him up and healed him. Um, you know, we could have spent, you know, many sessions tonight just on Wesley alone. But, but God, you know, he still loves people. And all his power is still present and available. And, um, you know, we as believers uh, have a responsibility just to be open. You know, we don't have to try to force anything to happen. Uh, we don't have to try to fabricate anything. But our hearts can be open to God all the time and say, God, you know, use me to touch somebody today. If it's just to simply encourage somebody, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. But if there's something more than that, you know, we want to be available to, um, you know, be led by the Spirit and uh, just know that God wants to express His mercy and His compassion and His power uh, yet today. Amen? Amen? I want everybody to stand up. We're going to just take a minute here and pray. 
And um, we're going to pray for a minute, and then I'm going to ask you if you have, you know, any kind of special need that you need God to touch your life and your body. I am not going to have you come up here for me to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for each other. Um, you know, there is, uh, there is power when we agree and touch an agreement and things like that. But let's first of all ask God to use us, and then we're going to see who has needs here and just, you know, allow you all to pray for and minister to each other. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you that we are the children of God. And Lord, we are the church. Uh, Jesus, you love the church. You said you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And Lord, you put great gifts within your body. And Father, I just pray that in every individual here, uh, that there would be a heart and a hunger, Lord, for us to see your power and your glory and your love and your compassion uh, manifested and multiplied, Lord, not just within the four walls of the church, but in the community when we're out with our neighbors, when we're out in our places of employment, uh, when we're in the store. Lord, we ask you to move through us and, and minister your grace, minister your compassion. And Father, I pray that not one person would ever uh, do that from a standpoint of, well, I want people to notice me. I want people to know how powerful I am, how many gifts I have. Lord, this is all about the people that you love and the people that you want to touch. Father, we thank you and we give you praise that you're going to give us uh, leadings and you're going to give us uh, just we're going to know that we just need to speak to somebody and 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 you're going to give us wisdom on how to approach and how to communicate and that lord you're going to make our witness beautiful and gracious and kind and humble but father we believe you're going to do great things through us and and you're going to do it for the glory of your name the honor of jesus it's going to be by the power of the spirit and Lord, we just thank you for amazing days ahead. And, and that, Lord, we'll live with a continual sense of expectancy and fervency and passion. And, and that, Father, we're just going to see uh, a revitalization, uh, a vibrancy. We're not just talking about in this particular congregation, but, Lord, all over the nation. We pray that there will be a great outpouring of your Spirit and it'll be gracious and wonderful and awesome to behold. And just, I just want to ask right now, how many people in this room tonight, you need some kind of a miracle. You need some kind of touch from God, something, you know, whether it's healing, whether it's encouragement, whatever. I, I want you to just raise your hand up. If that's you, you need something from God. Here's what I want everybody to do. I want everybody to look around. It seems like everybody that has their hand up is on this side of the room over here. So I need some of you folks over here to come this direction. And I want you to just uh, put your hand on their shoulder. And I just want you to ask them. And, 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 and please don't give a long detailed thing here. Just, just in a word. Just say, I need healing in my body. You know, I'm believing God for something for a son or a daughter. Uh, we need a financial miracle. Find out all those people that had their hand up. Put your hand up again. 
And I want you to find these people. If you need to walk across the room or turn around, find these people with their hands up and go ahead and, and ask them that question. Pray for them. And let's believe God for a mighty work together. So I want to wait until folks get over there. I want everybody with a few different hands on their shoulders. And uh, we're family. We love each other. We care for each other. And make sure you just keep your hand up until you've got some great support there. And you go ahead and ask them, hey, what are you believing God for? And we're going to see God do some things tonight. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray these are our brothers, these are our sisters. And Lord, we thank you that your hand is extended unto them right now. Lord, in the book of Acts, they prayed that you would stretch forth your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders by the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're praying that exact same prayer right now. Stretch forth your hand to heal. Stretch forth your hand to do miracles. Stretch forth your hand to deliver, to set free. Lord, we work in, in financial areas. Lord, thank you for blessing people emotionally. In every dimension of their lives, Father, we pray right now for an infusion of power by the Spirit of God. We thank you for a great, wonderful work. And we thank you that it's done for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Holy Spirit, thank you that you minister life to every person tonight that we're agreeing with, that we're joining in prayer with. Lord, not one of these is standing alone. We come against discouragement. We come against oppression. Lord, we come against any force that is pushing them down. Lord, we thank you that you're raising them up for your glory and for your honor. We thank you for great things happening in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, God is good, isn't he? Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Let's lift our hands and thank God. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us, give us uh, just a heart to be sensitive and, and, and to follow the Spirit of God, to be obedient to the Spirit of God. Lord, we don't have to make things happen. You're the one that makes things happen. Lord, we just have to be obedient to you. We thank you that you help us do that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. You can be seated. Let me tell can I tell you one thing and then I'm going to turn it back to Pastor Bobby. Um, sometimes, and this is going to sound like I'm just promoting my books, and I, I am. Um, but not only that. You know, we have that book called Life After Death. You know, we have that Rediscovering Life After the Loss of a Loved One. It's written to help people when they've had a loved one die. And um, it is one tool. There are thousands of tools that God may lead you to. You know, some people have it on their heart to minister to people dealing with addiction. Some people have it on their heart to minister to people who are struggling in finances. We have a lady in Tulsa that she has it on her heart and has had for the last 10 years to minister to people who've lost a loved one. 
And that's her ministry. She finds people. She works, she's a hostess at a McDonald's. And she's all, she prays every day, God, show me somebody that's hurting that I can minister to. She, her husband died 10 years ago. Um, and she got a hold of my book, that Life After Death book. It helped her and encouraged her. She contacted us, ordered five, ordered ten. She started giving these books away to people who had lost a loved one, you know, had a loved one die. And um, she just placed an order recently, and that brought her up to 730 copies of that book. Now, I'm not saying that you all are supposed to go out and buy all my books and give them away, but I'm just saying that's one way, you know, how, how might God use you? You may not be a Charles Spurgeon. You might not be a Martin Luther. But, you know, what is an area that maybe God is leading you? Maybe, maybe you have it. God's going to use you to reach single moms. Or God's going to use you to reach somebody who's, or, you know, have wayward kids or whatever. Or maybe, you know, but, but just be open to that. And... Um, God can use all of us in all these different ways. And I just wonder, you know, what would happen if everybody just had one little assignment like that? It's not a little assignment, but an assignment like that from the Holy Spirit, you know, outside the church, in addition to the things that God leads us to do inside the church. And let's remember that in addition to working of miracles and gifts of healings, you know what one of those supernatural things is right there in 1 Corinthians 12? Helps. Help. The ministry of helps is just as supernatural as all the others. So everybody can be used by the Holy Spirit in one way, shape, or form. Amen.